0: Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team, for pointing us to Christ this morning, reminding us of the gospel, and reminding us that our King does, in fact, reign. It's been a good day already, and I'm looking forward to this section of Luke, and then also we have the privilege of hearing from some missionaries this morning, some missionary friends that are with us, so we still have a full morning ahead of us. So we're in Luke chapter 7 this morning. If you're new here to the Sunrise family, we are pretty easy to figure out. We go through verses of Scripture, books of the Bible, and we go through verse by verse by verse, sometimes word by word. So we find ourselves here in Luke chapter 7, we're going to be beginning in verse 36, And just to remind us a little bit of context for where we are, we're on the heels of Jesus performing two miracles and then having a question raised about his identity. Specifically, is he the one that is to come? Is he the Messiah? And that's the section that we looked at last week. So, John the Baptist, the one who was the forerunner of Christ, he was the one who went to prepare the way for Christ, he raises the question Are you the one? And part of the question, what drove his question, is Jesus was checking a lot of the boxes, but there were certain expectations, messianic expectations, for what the Messiah was going to do, what kind of ruler he was going to be. It's time to kick the Romans out of this area. It's time to take back our land. And Jesus wasn't necessarily leading that kind of revolution. I think that's part of, at least, what caused John the Baptist to say, are are you the one? Because a lot of things are lining up, but not everything as he thought it would. Of course, we can unsort this in our own thinking. Here we are 2,000 years later with the full story in our minds. We can unsort this understanding the first coming and the second coming, which we talk quite a bit about. That brings us down to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This is another one of the meal scenes that we have with Jesus. Jesus goes and he dines with a Pharisee. Eating a meal together is always a special and significant thing. Through every culture, it really always has been. You know, many years ago when I was doing youth ministry, we had a rotation of something that we did from time to time with the students, just a way to engage them and see them during the week. We alternated between doing Taco Tuesday and French Fry Friday. And so during the school year, sometimes... Not every week, but we would go to their school, and if it was a Tuesday, we'd bring tacos to our students. If it was a Friday, we would do French Fry Friday. Now, this might be a ministry that we should get ramped back up around here, right? And not limit it to students. You know, come bring you tacos and French fries. It's a pretty good deal. So we would show up at a school, and normally the kids were pretty excited to see us. Um, One, because we are bringing them free food, and I know how that goes, But then too, just to see a familiar face and you're around all your friends and a lot of times kids would come running up and they're introducing you to their friends and it's just a good time. One time I went to this one school and there were a few of the kids that came up and we were talking and they were just happy to be there. We were hanging out and having a good time in the lunchroom, big lunchroom, big school. But there was this one girl that was a part of our church and she was very distant when she was at the church, kind of parents made her go and she didn't really wanna be there. And so uh, she, she didn't really want to be associated with me um, at the school. And so at one point, I kind of look over and I see her with her friends and she kind of looks at me and I look at her and I just kind of gave her a knowing like, hi, I see you, uh, kind of wave like, hey, you're welcome to join us if you'd like. But I figured at that point, the best thing I could do was probably not run across the middle of the, of the uh, auditorium there and embarrass her in front of all our friends because she didn't really want to be associated with me. And I'm like, you know what? I'll honor that. It's a story of grace, by the way. Nobody that you guys would know because she's now following the Lord, loves the Lord, married, has a great family. Um, just a fantastic, um, fantastic story of grace uh, through that and watching the Lord work in her life. But at that point in time, she didn't really want to be associated with me and that's okay. Why is it that we sometimes want to be or don't want to be associated with particular people? Some of us are in that frame of life where we have teenagers and it's our job to embarrass them, correct? Where's my parents out there who are similar? It's our job, we, we have a duty um, to do this. Why is it that we want some people we, we want to be associated with and others don't? We don't. And I think deep down inside, it's a pretty simple answer because the people we associate with says something about us, right? And I've heard it said plenty of times before in different variations, but show me your three closest friends and I'll tell you what you're like. And that's kind of true for the most part, isn't it? We have a story today and we have a story of Jesus and this woman who comes up to him and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, expect him to be embarrassed, They expect him to hang out with the cool kids across the lunchroom and don't expect him to welcome this girl, but he does, and it shocks the whole system. This is a pattern that we see in Luke over and over and over again. Jesus continually finds those who are marginalized, those who have been pushed out, those who have been ostracized, and he brings them close. And the cool kids, the in crowd, he seems to have confrontations with over and over and over again. The story, again, is a pretty simple one. I'll read it for us here in just a moment. It's pretty simple to see what's going on, but the lessons and the theology behind this are really profound for us, and I hope that you'll feel the weight of this passage as well. It's amazing that Jesus is not embarrassed to be associated with particular people, namely us, even as humans, Right? Hebrews two eleven. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he that being Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Isn't that an amazing verse? He's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Now, in Hebrews here, we're talking specifically about Jesus taking on humanity in what we call the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas time in a unique and particular way. But Jesus is also not ashamed here socially to be associated with this woman. Why is that? Let's read our text and then we'll explore some of those questions. So, starting in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair from her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Teacher, say it. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Is such an easy story and clear story in so many ways. Seeing the compassion of Jesus. A few lessons that we're going to learn from our Savior as we walk through this text this morning. We're going to see his impartiality. We're going to see the self awareness of this woman who became aware of her own sinfulness, self righteousness of the Pharisees, one Pharisee in particular here. And then we're going to see his parable of forgiveness and gratitude. Jesus continues to gravitate towards those who are marginalized. And Luke even continues to draw attention to the reality that Jesus is hanging out with, of all the people, prostitutes and tax collectors. But let's don't forget the other significant piece here. Jesus is dining with the Pharisees. Now, there's some irony in all of this, right? Because Simon says, down in verse 39... Now, when, uh, when the Pharisee, this is Simon who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is that's touching him. She is a sinner. Now, the irony is, of course, that he's at the home of a Pharisee who is what? A sinner. <laughs> so there's some irony baked into this. Jesus is impartial. He goes and he dines with the Pharisees. Now, a lot of times it doesn't go exactly like they wanted it to go. In fact, there's a contrast here that's set up. There's three different stories that we have in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll get, to, we'll get to these in due time. I just wanted to show them to you here in a chart form. And I'm always glad to send these to anybody that wants them afterwards, but don't just tell me. You have to send me a message or it, it, it won't happen, promise. Um, so send me an email or text or whatever. Uh, so in 736 through 50, we see that Jesus offends by allowing the sinful woman to come to him and then he continues on with lessons and confrontations we'll see that one in just a moment in chapter 11 37 through 40 uh, 54 there's another time when jesus goes and he dines with pharisees now jesus does not wash up before dinner so many of your moms would get on to you for that There was a certain ceremony that the pharisees went through and a certain way that you were supposed to wash the hands and we'll we'll talk more about that when we come to this passage but jesus didn't do it and so they're watching him going what's wrong with him and they're highly offended that he didn't wash appropriately before he came to dinner and jesus turns that into a lesson and says you pharisees you know what you do you clean the outside of the cup but you leave the inside dirty. Now, which one's more significant and important? Of course, it's the inside, what you're actually drinking. And he goes on to talk a few different times about that in different ways. In chapter 14, he's again dining with the Pharisees. This time it's on the Sabbath, and they're watching him because they know that Jesus has a tendency to do this terrible thing of healing people on the Sabbath. Can you imagine Can you imagine the audacity of making somebody whole and right on the Sabbath? And so there's this man, as the ESV says, he has dropsy, what we would maybe call edema, today. And Jesus does heal him. And then he gives a lesson about true honor and what these festivals and feasts are really all about. Those are coming up. Just wanted you to have an idea But this is not the first time and it's not the last time that Jesus will dine with sinners, particularly the Pharisees. So let's go back to Jesus' impartiality. He dines with this Pharisee named Simon, not to be confused with the apostle, Simon Peter. And there are a number of questions we could ask. Um, Why is Jesus there? What was Simon's motivation? Was it genuine curiosity? Uh, Maybe an opportunity to question Uh, to question Jesus for himself. This is significant and important. Why was he even there? But Jesus did choose to go there. And he chose to go there and he chose to put himself in the midst of sinners. A few years ago, there was a a commercial I remember remember seeing and I went and looked it up to see if I remembered it rightly and it it was what I remembered it to be. Uh, In Belgium, there was a beer company, Carlsberg, no recommendations, just telling you about the commercial. They did a social experiment. And they, they, this social experiment, they had a theater. And in the theater, they had 148 sort of, some of you guys may have seen this, sort of big, burly biker dudes, all right, that were in this theater. And they left two seats right in the middle, two seats right in the middle of the theater, and so they would take an unsuspecting couple they would buy their tickets to go see whatever theater it was whatever movie it was in the theater and they would walk in and this is all caught on camera and there's two seats stadium seating right in the middle all these guys and all the all of the guys as soon as somebody walked in they would do their best mean don't mess with me face and they would just stare at him you know with this gruff kind of arms crossed looking at him and they filmed the reaction of these people and it was really interesting uh, watching because a number of, number of people came in and they looked at the seats like, eh, never mind, we'll go see something else. And they back back out, you know, some of them, one spouse would wanna go up there and the other one grabs her arm like, I ain't going up there, and they would turn around and walk out. But then there were couples that, that would just walk in, you know, maybe a couple, a guy and a girl, or friends, uh, whatever it was. They just walk in like, oh, there's the seats. And they would kinda, you know, muscle their way through and walk in and they would sit down. As soon as they sat down, what they did is they, they put the spotlight on them and everybody, everybody started clapping for them. Um, and it was sort of this social experiment of, you know, a don't judge a book by its cover, you know, kind of thing. And so I think what is going on here, it's a different type of experiment here. But this woman walks in and the Pharisees are saying, no, you don't need anything to do with her. And Jesus accepts her. What an amazing thing that we have going on here with Christ. We'll see more of that in just a moment. So, Jesus is impartial. He's dining with the Pharisees and he's also going to accept this woman who's repentant of her sins. Next, self awareness of this lady. The self awareness, verse 37 Behold, a woman from the city, she's a sinner. When she learned that he, that being Jesus, was reclining at the table, she brought this alabaster flask of ointment and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. There's something about coming clean, isn't there? If you've ever held on to any sort of a secret sin or held on to a way of life that you knew was wrong, there's something about coming clean and we all know this just as humans, how much more to come clean with the Lord? And this is what happens this lady she's she's an intruder she comes busting up into the party she wasn't avoided Uh, she wasn't invited so in the homes like this you might be wondering kind of how could that happen well in homes like this in the first century most people think there was something of an open area uh, sort of semi-public area, and people could walk by, and they would see people in there, you know, having a feast, dining. We saw a little bit of this in Uganda, and they, you know, it's, a, it's everybody walks, you know, kind of everywhere around the neighborhoods and streets, and if you see your friends are out, and they're having a meal, and most of the homes are kind of open, open air, and a lot of patios and things like that, if they're having a good meal, you just, you just pull up a chair. Uh, you know, you walk on in. Some of you are like, that sounds awesome awesome. Um, Others, you know, you're like, I need a door, (laughs) you know, to (laughs) close myself in. And I get that. But it's pretty common um, in some cultures even, you know, still today. Like, hey, they're having a party. I'm coming on in. So this lady decides Jesus is there. I need Jesus. And she she just hops on in and she brings with her, she comes prepared, she brings this flask of ointment. Now in that culture, probably aware, the washing of the feet would be customary. They walked everywhere and didn't have closed-toed shoes quite like we understand them and do today. And so it would be customary to have someone wash the feet of your guest as you showed up. Um, and this, Jesus washes his disciples' feet and it was, it was not exactly the job everybody wanted to do for obvious reasons because it was the feet. This lady comes in though and she's noted as a sinner. She's a notorious person of the city. Now, it doesn't say this specifically, but indications are most people think in reading this that it probably means that she was a prostitute. She was known by that, and that was her identity. Doesn't say specifically, but she was a sinner enough to where everybody knew who she was. Oh, that person's here. How is Jesus going to respond? Now, this gets kind of embarrassing after this. Verse 38 Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, some of you may be wondering about the mechanics of this, because when we go to sit down at a table, we sit down in chairs, right? Um, that's not how the world worked uh, back then. So it was kind of something like this. Uh, when you lay down, typically on your left side, uh, that was the custom, so you would sort of lounge. Um, I've been wanting to try this uh, at home. I don't know if I could digest things like doing this, but it's how it worked. So you would you would sort of lounge at the table. And we'll see in another place when we get to the next meal scene over in Luke 14. There was a certain pecking order to where you sat in relation to the host and and so you weren't you were supposed to kind of know your spot, you know, sort of like the the, the chickens out in the coop, they were supposed to kind of know who's in charge and, and who gets what rank, and that determined where you would sit. So Jesus is reclined at the table, sharing some fellowship, answering the Pharisees' questions, no doubt, and in comes this woman, this notorious woman of the city that everybody knows, and she's big crying, like big ugly crying. Now, the we can handle it in public when, and somebody kind of gets, you know, teared up and emotional. It, it's meaningful to us. It's like, yeah, you, you know, I'm not crying. You're crying. You stop crying. You make me cry. That's, that's fine. And that happens here sometimes. You know, people get emotional about reading a scripture and uh, hearing a testimony, things like that. It can get to us. But there, there's a line somewhere in there that we cross, though, when somebody just goes all in crying, right? Um, especially in public. It's like, oh, well, that wasn't just a, I'm a little bit moved. That's a, I am undone, undone crying. So much so that she's crying behind Jesus and her tears are beginning to wet his feet. It's big crying. And I'm sure the Pharisees at this point are standing around going, this is embarrassing. Jesus doesn't even know that he should be embarrassed right now. Have you ever felt secondhand embarrassment for somebody that doesn't seem to know they should be embarrassed about whatever's going on? I imagine this is what's happening. This lady is big crying, wetting his feet. She's like, oh no, my tears are on his feet. She leans down with her hair, lets her hair down, which was another cultural uh, taboo in the day, lets her hair down, wipes his feet. It's such a tender, incredible moment. How is Jesus going to react to this? That leads to this self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. I can't believe that Jesus is letting him do this. If he was a real prophet, he would know, don't let this woman touch you, she's not clean, she's gonna make you ritually impure, unclean, Don't do this, Jesus. What's wrong with you? Well, I guess he's not a legitimate prophet. Maybe Simon had invited him that night. The jury's out. Is Jesus a real prophet? Is he from God or not? And in his mind, maybe the answer is being given here. I guess he's not, because he would know, don't associate with this woman. You need to run across the lunchroom. Don't let this woman touch you. Now, Jesus, one of two things is going on here either knows his thoughts, which is possible. We see places in the scripture where Jesus knows what someone is thinking, like John 2, other places as well. It says the Pharisee said to himself, or Simon, the Pharisee, muttered something to himself sort of under his breath and said it a little louder than he meant to. We've all done that at some point, right? Or we say something, go, did I say that out loud? Uh, did, Did that come out? We don't know, it's probably the former, probably he's thinking to himself and Jesus knows what he's thinking. And Jesus takes the opportunity and says, Simon, I have a lesson for you. I have something I wanna say. Well, they're all gonna wonder what's about to happen. Jesus hasn't rebuked this lady. He hasn't even made any efforts to get away from her. He hasn't acted uncomfortable with this woman who was the sinner. That leads us to this last section Forgiveness and gratitude prompts a story from Jesus. It's a parable. It's a short little parable, and I like what R.C. Sproul said about this one. He said, there's none simpler in the teaching ministry of Jesus, and I appreciate that. There's none simpler. The parable goes like this. There were these two debtors. One owed a very, very large sum of money, and the second one owed a large sum of money. Now, 500 denarii and 50 denarii, to put this in terms that we can sort of grab onto, 500 denarii would be about two years of wages, all right? So take your income, multiply it by two. That's what you owed, okay? Um, 50 denarii then would be about roughly two months of wages. Now, neither one are like small potatoes. Like they're, they're both pretty significant amount of money. So let's put it in our world. If you took an average income around the Jacksonville Beaches area, it can vary a lot, I know. But let's just take $70,000 as an average household total income. It's about $140,000 of debt for the 500 denarii and about $12,000 of debt for the 50 denarii. Now, for most people, neither one of those numbers are anything to laugh at, $12,000. But just imagine the excitement if you had this big debt, almost like a mortgage and somebody just came and wiped it out for you, said, don't worry about it, I got this, cleared out, how excited would you be? You'd be pretty happy about both of those, but how much more excited, happy, loving, joyful would you be if you received that kind of forgiveness of debt, that's the lesson. Now, something interesting happens here, verse 47 After Jesus discusses what this woman did, she's doing a better thing than you, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Let's just be clear. This woman wasn't simply affirmed by Jesus in her sin to remain in her sin. Let's be clear with that. She wasn't simply affirmed in her sin she was, it's noted that she is a sinner. Jesus continually deals with people and their sins. It's amazing that people are comfortable coming to Jesus with their sin, but he doesn't leave them in their sin. It's a place and a time to repent. Remember the story in John 4, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. He says, hey, give me some water and she does, and the woman's shocked. Why are you a man talking to me? A Samaritan woman? You're breaking all kinds of rules here. And so Jesus strikes up a conversation and then he starts asking her about her marital status. Like, oh, what about your husband? Well, about that. And Jesus knows and he, he says, Yeah, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're with right now, that's not actually your husband, right? She's like, Oh gosh, like who am I talking to? He he engages her in conversation. And he, but he doesn't leave her in her sin just to sort of wallow in our sin. That's not what it is. She's obviously broken over her sins. And here's the point. There's no need for Jesus to write out a list of all your sins, all your shortcomings, all your failures, and beat her over the head with it again. And I think that's a lesson for us, isn't it? When people come and they're broken, Jesus, remember we've said this a couple times through Luke, Jesus is like the mercury in a thermometer. Um, when, when he encounters people that are broken, that are contrite, that are repentant, he is so tender and gentle. When he encounters people that don't think they have a problem, who think that they are already righteous, well, they get, they get a different sort of treatment. They get the rebuke of Christ, which is what the Pharisees get over and over and over about again. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. He says this woman's repentant and we're rejoicing in her repentance her sins are many and that's why she's been forgiven of those that's why she loves much let's just be clear here we are a church and we absolutely welcome sinners and that's good news because we all belong in that category we're all sinners now I was thinking this last week um, had an opportunity to do a, I did a radio show with a friend uh, Doug McCreary. He does uh, something called SWAT radio. Some of you guys may listen to that this last week and he was asking me some questions about um, how did you come to Christ like tell us your story and it got me thinking back uh, some twenty five years ago now on my own story my own conversion and I remember and i 've joked with you guys before that I think sometimes we we think yeah I need like a I, I grew up in the church, my dad was a pastor um, most of my life, and so my Outwardly, I was pretty conformed to my environment. Um, no, no, like crazy things were going on, and I'd sort of figured out the easiest way, the the path of least resistance to to maintain freedoms from my parents is to not do anything like really dumb, um, at least that they know about. So, I'd sort of figured that part out and thought, I'm I'm kind of outwardly a pretty decent kid, but the inside, you know, I was I was Pharisee. Um, The inside of the cup was just. A mess, um, but outwardly, I looked okay. I came to understand the gospel through a series of different events and scriptures. I finally repented of my sins and trusted in Christ, and it began an inside-out transformation, and that's what's going on here with this lady. It was an inside-out sort of transformation, and I started thinking about that and thinking, you know, I don't really need a testimony upgrade, and what I started telling people is the gospel is so powerful that it can save self-righteous church kids too. Like, that's how awesome the gospel is. And so I don't think, when Jesus is talking here, I don't think he's saying that some people don't have as far to go to be forgiven. I think what he's saying is there's really no such thing as little forgiveness, but your perception of yourself right now is so off and skewed that you can't even see that. Interesting, if you track the Apostle Paul, this is really interesting. Uh, others have pointed this out as well. First Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says, telling his own story, his recounting of seeing the, the resurrected Christ, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Now, here's what's interesting. He moves from that to Ephesians 3. He says, I'm the least of the Lord's people, least amongst the people, so apostles, kind of an elite group, God's people, but then in 1 Timothy 1, which we'll get to pretty soon here in our equipping our study, he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. I like the translation, the chief of sinners. I'm the top. Now, what's interesting here as well is if you look at the dates of the writing of those books, Corinthians comes and then Ephesians, then Timothy. It seems like Paul was becoming more aware um, of what he was, and I think many of us feel that way as well feels sort of like we're sweeping a dirt floor sometimes when we come to christ maybe some of the big things fall off and then you start to really look at your own heart and that's what jesus is inviting these pharisees to do you think you're fine you think you're okay but you're not you're not actually because you're like the inside of the cup that's all dirty and you've just shined up the outside and said there i fixed it we just plastered over and put new drywall up but the studs are all rotted out and there's mold and mildew behind it. That's what we did. That's what the Pharisees did, you and your laws. I wanna share just a couple of ways that we can take this text as a church family and let's just pray for these things to be true amongst us here. Number one, my prayer for our church and this is for individuals as well, a place that welcomes sinners. A place that welcomes sinners And again, we want to imitate Jesus in this, not to leave people in their sins, but to welcome people in their sins for the purpose of walking with Christ and following him in holiness and godliness. We want to welcome people. Next, we need to be a place that is forgiven much. Forgiven much, we don't wanna be a place that looks down our nose at other people and go, wow, how could you? Um, If that's our approach, then we we find ourselves more with the Pharisees here, the people that end up in opposition to Jesus, not maintain, not carrying out his mission, and what he came here to do. There's two groups of people in the world: those who have been forgiven of their sins by Christ and those who have not. Um, That's the simple division in the Bible. That's the division that's going to matter ultimately. We have all sorts of things and all sorts of ways that we are divided in this world. That's the one that matters the most, those who are forgiven and those who aren't. If this strikes a chord with you, maybe you don't know exactly where you are in that. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you feel a little bit pharisaical. You know, maybe I am that one who's just looking down my nose at everybody else and saying, how could you live that way? How could you make those decisions? I would pray. I would pray for all of us. You might maintain that attitude as a Christian. Um, maybe, maybe though, maybe it's the Lord, sort of like he did with me many years ago, showing you that your conformity is only external and it's never been internal. We would love the opportunity to talk with you more about that after the service. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this amazing...